Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey services for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com. Welcome to Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm your host, Bob Zaltzberg, along with co-host Lori McGrobby. Today we're talking about the ties between Russia and China and the impacts that they may have on – that those ties will have on the rest of the world. We have three guests in the studio with us today. Regina Smith is professor of political science at Indiana University. Jason Wu is assistant professor of political science at IU, and Dr. Mustafa Beshkar is associate professor of economics at IU Bloomington. You can reach us on the show by calling 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or toll-free 877-285-9348. You can also reach us news at indianapublicmedia.org. And you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. You can send us your questions there. Thank you all three for joining us in the studio. It's a treat to have everybody here together to talk about this very large issue of the relationship between China and Russia and what that mean what that might mean for the rest of us, you know, in the in the aftermath of the Russia's war on Ukraine and and other things going on in the world. So I, I just want to open with a very broad question. And um, Regina Smith, I want to ask you first, I mean, we, we've re- had the recent summit between the presidents of the two countries. Uh, what does that relationship mean? Does it is Do you read anything major into that summit for the rest of the world? Well, the war has revealed Russia for what it is, a quite a weak state, a disorganized state, a very weak economy, uh, a country that undertook military reform for more than a decade. That was another failure. Putin in this moment of the Ukraine war is fighting a war of attrition. Ukraine is much smaller. It's being funded by the West. And Putin is banking on the West being getting tired of the war, tired of funding Ukraine, Mm -hmm. and of Ukrainian forces being demoralized or depleted. And China is key for that strategy, because the closer it appears that China and Russia are, the more it looks like China could present weapons or support Russia in some way, distract the West, make everything seem more uncertain, the better the war of attrition goes. Mm -hmm. And so that, I think, is one really common interest these people have in common. Dr. Smith is our Russian expert here today. So we also have an expert in China today, Jason Wu, assistant professor of political science. So from your perspective, what's this coming together of these two countries look like? Well, I don't know that there's really um, that much affinity, uh, but it seems as though there's this common enemy from their point of view, which is, of course, you know, um, the U.S. And so um, they, you know, I don't know that China is necessarily thrilled um, that all of this is happening, but um, but given that it's happening, uh, it would be very contrary to Chinese interests, as understood by the Communist Party, um, if this went sour. Uh, more sour than already has gone um, for Russia. And so um, I think that Chinese leaders, what they're really worried about is that this leads to some kind of, um, I don't know, like a uh, solidification of the U.S.-European you know, alliance that we saw um, in, in the Cold War. They're trying to pick off, um, I don't know, like inter uh, powers in between um, the U.S. and China. They're trying to, you know, work with um, uh, places like France, which want to have some kind of independence, you know, um, and this invasion has made it more difficult um, for them to maintain that kind of uh, freedom of maneuver. And so I think that um, 
they're trying to make the best of it, um, and uh, they're also, you know, sneaking in a little bit more influence in Central Asia, um, while you know uh, Russia's sphere of influence is starting to um, uh, to take some hits. And so, you know, from our point of view, sometimes it looks like they these two countries are united against um, Western interests, but I'm not so sure that it always looks that way um, from Beijing. Okay. And Dr. Beshkar, the, the economic implications of these two um, nations seemingly having a more chummy relationship, what would those be? So in terms of economic impact, I think the objective of Russia from this meeting or trying to get closer to China is basically to weaken the sanctions that the U.S. and Europeans are imposing on Russia. But in terms of direct economic impacts on, on the U.S., it does, I don't think that there is much evidence to say that it is going to impact uh, U.S. economy. So it does impact European economy, but they seem to have, in Europe, f uh, found alternative sources of energy. And uh, so Russian, Russia's impact on uh, world economy is quite limited because um, they, are, they, they are not important trading partners of many countries, except for energy. And as you know, there are a lot of alternative sources of energy. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Yeah. So basically, I think uh, this meeting uh, shows a rerouting of uh, trade in energy, basically. So China used to export a lot of energy to Europe. Now they have to find alternative sources, which means that Europe will find also alternative sources. And so the economic impact in that sense is going to stay limited. Okay. I wanted to follow up a bit on this, um, well, points all of you have raised, but particularly, Regina, about um, uh, just what kind of what's in it for Russia with in terms of this relationship and Russia being pretty clearly the junior partner, if not looking a lot even like a client state um, of China and and what that suggests for Putin's power within Russia. Uh, I wonder if you can comment on that. Yeah, sure. So I think that um, Jason made a really important point about, um, and you, Laura, just have done the same. So this is an asymmetric relationship. China is definitely the stronger partner. We're now talking about Russia as a vassal state. I mean, there's quite strong language coming out about what's happening. Um, I think the other point that Jason made that's really important is what we are seeing is political performance. We are not seeing strong integrated ties. In fact, Russia's sorry, China is exploiting Russia. It's paying less than market prices for energy. It's uh, uh, the defense minister came to Moscow in a big show, but there were no announced agreements for weapons that would be put out there, and and that's unusual, right? On the other hand, Mr. Xi is doing this amazing job of propping up President Putin. So he comes to Russia. He doesn't make Putin come to China. He comes to Russia. He endures some of the indignities that Putin's been inflicting on people. Certainly he's treated better, but still endures a little bit. Putin doesn't go to the airport to meet him, although he does get a big band and some ceremony. So so and and not much came out of that meeting that was concrete. So I viewed that much as performance to prop up Mr. Putin, who has never been more uncertain. So uh, Russia, right at this moment, is engaged in conscription. They've just announced a new conscription. It's very frightening. It's going to be done through internet sources. So there used to be a law that you had to get your conscription notice from the mail or in person. Now you get it delivered to your inbox through uh, a, a whole internet source called Kaslugi, which you use to pay your rent or your water or you use to pay other things. So everyone's on it. Everyone can be contacted. This is a whole new level of conscription and Russians are now just dealing with it. And there have already been cases of protest and quiescence, uh, not quiescence, but, but anger over this fear. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious to, and I want to ask Jason this too on the Chinese side, about the, the Russian people, the Chinese people, and the relative electoral strength of Putin and Xi. And Putin in particular, obviously the, the mechanisms that he has in place to keep his lock on power are, are different. Um, but but 
perhaps have some some resemblance, but it, it seems to me totally outside of all of this that Putin is more vulnerable in terms of his, the internal politics of Russia than she is in China. Um, and if it were the case that Putin were to be ousted, who's who's behind him <laughs> that could make this either worse or better? Um, so, Regina, if you could speak to that, and then I'd be interested in knowing from Jason what kind of the read is on Xi's relative um, electoral strength is as we go forward and how this might affect that. So Putin's political party, United Russia, is very politically vulnerable and has to have had to fix elections for the past you know, decade in order to gain a majority in parliament. And it's they've become very sophisticated at fixing elections, so much so that everyone expects it to be fixed, so no one protests. Mm -hmm. It's the expected outcome. Um, with Mr. Putin himself, he faces elections in 2024. I believe that the timing, maybe not the motivation, but the, but the deep timing of this war, this invasion, take Kiev in three days, was electorally motivated, that he could replicate his electoral success of Crimean annexation after the revolution of dignity in Ukraine. And um, his, he got a huge bump in the polls. It waned by 2018. He still managed to fix the election. No one's ever, no one who could win is ever allowed to run against Mr. Putin. Um, now, it's a totally different country. So there is no organization of opposition left in Russia. It's been decapitated. And there is no free media left in Russia. We can talk about the diaspora communities, which are part of this competition in Central Asia, actually, um, and the media and activities in the Russian diaspora. But um, Putin will run, he will win, but everyone will know it's fixed. So elections are no longer a legitimizing or a censoring mm -hmm. force. Mm -hmm. And just to answer your last bit, I'm sorry to go on, That's is right. that um, Putin will win in part because he has about 30% of support in the country. The rally around the flag, my country, I hate this war, I don't know what we're here, but if we lose, it's a disaster for us. And the idea that there is no clear person behind him is why no one, but few people will take to the streets after 2024. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Jason, what about the dynamics in China with respect to, I mean, she just was reelected. He seems to have began to have <laughs> uh, fixed things in, uh, in the way that that played out. But uh, what, in terms of his, um, his support, his popularity, uh, and so forth, is is this relationship playing well with the Chinese people in general? Yeah, so this is a really interesting question, and I don't know that we have a great answer for what people really think about this. Um, I, I think that it's unusual. This, this war, unlike most previous wars, um, has created some kind of divide uh, in online expressions of support um, in China. Um, certainly, the people who uh, take Russia's side are more emboldened to speak out. Um, and so, if you just sort of count, you know, um, like who says what, then uh, then it looks as though most people are supportive. And you know, that very well could be the case. But um, I think it's interesting. I mean, this this war is very contrary to some of China's long-held dogmas about you know international relations, like don't interfere in other country's domestic <laughs> affairs, right? It's, it's a little bit um, awkward uh, to stop talking about that, although, you know, um, uh, obviously they're not as constrained um, uh, in terms of how they talk about these things. Um, but yes, I don't know. I mean, I think that as far as, you know, she and whether he feels secure um, in power or not, I think there were a couple of worries within the party, um, especially with this sort of public unrest. Um, uh, surrounding, you know, how long these COVID lockdowns had gone, mm -hmm. um, but mm -hmm. uh, after they opened up, you know, um, they I think they had been really worried about uh, political implications of opening up, and I don't think those were as bad as um, they maybe feared them to be. And so, you know, by the time you're someone like she, I, 
um, if we look at the research, usually you you die in office. You know, you've yeah. you've already consolidated, right? Um, and so, um, you know, I don't know that. And and if there was some kind of domestic political threat, it's not clear that it would be you know popular one or or one from you know within the regime. I think that usually when you've consolidated, it be, the popular threats are more worrisome than the sort of internal um, regime threats, but. But for most dictators, they're actually unseated by another sort of member of their of their inner circle. And so um, if you're a dictator, you worry about both of these things. About that. Yeah. We're talking about a very large global issue today, the relationship between Russia and China and what it means to the U.S. and the rest of the world. We have three guests in the studio, Regina Smith, professor of political science at IU and a Russia expert, Jason Wu, assistant professor of political science at IU and a, an expert in China, Chinese politics, and, Dr. and Mustafa uh, Beshkar, who is an associate professor of economics at IU, and he can talk about the economic parts of this. I want to turn to you about the, just, um, Dr. Beshkar, the, there have been sanctions on, um, on Russia put in by the U.S. I mean, there have been sanctions on China. How, how successful are sanctions, and, and what's, this, you know, what's this partnership mean, or how, how do they relate to this partnership? Yeah, so the sanctions uh, on Russia uh, or other countries uh, have had different levels of success. So in terms of, in the case of Russia, there are no secondary sanctions. That is, for example, if Chinese firms want to trade with China, uh, with, uh, with Russia, there are no sanctions that U.S. or Europeans would impose on, on those firms. But the U.S. Ha- is still uh, very, ab- very much able to impose the sanctions and enforce sanctions even uh, when it comes to trade between Chinese firms and, and Russian firms because of the SWIFT system. Because SWIFT is controlled by European and, and, and the U.S. And uh, so they cut off uh, Russia's access to the system, which means that so most companies, most firms in the world use that for international transactions. So uh, Russia, because of that, has a lot of trouble uh, trading with other countries, even countries that do not want to impose sanctions on, on Russia. And this relationship, so one of the uh, new things that they announced, at least Putin seemed to announce there, was that they are going to use uh, yuan as the currency of trade rather than dollar or euro. And that's one uh, attempt to get around the sanctions. And they already have their own alternatives to SWIFT, but uh, it's not used very much by many countries. So Russia and China, both of them have alternatives to SWIFT. But especially the one that uh, Russia started is not used by many other countries. And uh, so it seems like Russia is trying to use the system that China has uh, tried to promote since 2008, I believe. And uh, so which means that they they are going to uh, have their transactions in Yuan. And I think that that was the most interesting outcome of that meeting for me, because right after that, uh, Brazil also announced that they are going to use Yuan uh, in a lot of their international transactions, especially with, with China, which means that they could even use that if they want to have transactions with Russia, they can use Yuan. So mm-hmm. that, that, that is at least a suggestion. It is not apply, uh, it's not implemented yet. And also another country that announced that they are going to use Yuan uh, uh, is uh, Iran. So because they also have a lot of uh, trouble trading with entities that do not want to impose sanctions on Iran, but they are using SWIFT. And there's no other way to, uh, or there are very like a difficult. There, it's very difficult to make these transactions if you are not using SWIFT. And I think that that was probably the most uh, interesting economic uh, outcome or announcement, at least, uh, from that meeting. So we talked before the show a little bit about the de-dollarization of the world economy. Is is that something that it seems like that would be a, have very dramatic negative effects on the U.S. Is that something that you see actually happening? So that word, you can you hear that a lot uh, in the past few years. But I don't think that that is happening because, you know, in these transactions among these countries, uh, you may use a lot less dollar. But these transactions are a small part of the world economy. And uh, so in order to replace dollar with another currency, let's say yuan, China has to fundamentally change its economic system because uh, private entities or even governments are, do not trust uh, 
yuan as a very safe uh, currency. So they are they don't want to keep their foreign reserves in yuan because uh, China has a very tight capital control, which means that you cannot easily buy Chinese assets. And if you do, you cannot easily take your assets out of China. So because of that, countries and individual entities, private entities, they do not want, they would not want to use yuan, even if, uh, you know, they promote it at the political level and diplomatic level. But to replace dollar, that seems to be very, very far from uh, reality. I have one follow, one additional follow-up question came from our producer. Uh, How does that, how does this affect the value of other currencies in the world when uh, other countries start using something other than the dollar? Uh, is so there any impact on other currencies? On, like for example, on dollar. Yeah. Right? So when there is less demand for dollars, so, uh, so, in terms of what the effect on the value of the currency or the exchange rates, I think it depends a lot on the U.S. policy as well. So it doesn't necessarily have a very clear impact. But what is uh, clear is that U.S. Uh, right now benefits from the fact that everyone demands dollar, which means that we can just print these bonds or money, and in exchange for printed money, we can get goods from the rest of the world. And the U.S. ability to do that is going to uh, build, it's going to go down. But as I said, that doesn't seem to be uh, the, tr- uh, the, the the direction that we are going. Okay. Laura? Yeah. Just um, con- sort of continuing on the economic um, implications about just global trade and, and how – well, both the alliance and, and just particularly the situation in Russia affects – how they're uh, managing their trading trade relationships. Um, I think we were talking before about um, uh, kind of trying to disrupt the Western lock on the global economy by forging separate relationship with, with France. Could you say a little bit more about what's at stake uh, with respect to that kind of a trading relationship? Yeah, so uh, as far as this, uh, as far as Russia is concerned, I think Russia is not an important economic partner right. almost of uh, any countries. Maybe Belarus, some countries around Russia are depend on Russia very much. But uh, if if you are talking about Russia, I I don't see much impact because uh, even with relationship with China, as uh, Regina mentioned, so it's a very asymmetric relationship between China and uh, Russia. So recently, trade between these two countries have uh, increased a lot, but it seems like. Uh, China is the main winner here because China has found new uh, destination for its exports, but Russia doesn't have much besides oil and gas to export. So in that case also, uh, I think the effect on the global economy, as far as Russia is concerned, it seems to be very limited. But of course, China is uh, using this as a a way to increase its influence on the world economy. And uh, yeah, so there is that rivalry between the U.S. and China that uh, might be affected, but this is not a big step, I would say. The relationship between China and Russia doesn't seem to be a big step, but you mentioned France. Mm-hmm. That would be a different story, and that's yeah. a very new thing I've heard. I, I don't know all the details of that. Where, where, that's, gonna, mm-hmm. where that's gonna lead us, you know, yeah. From, I, I, when we were talking with both of you, the, the political scientists, it sounds as if Ukraine really was the sort of the fulcrum that started this whole thing. Is that is that accurate? How how I mean how um, we, will we be having the show if Russia had not invaded Ukraine? Yeah, I guess um, something I wonder sometimes is when we write the history of what's happening right now. Um, will this be characterized as a second Cold War? And will people mm-hmm. say that it started um, last year? Will they say it started in 2014? Will they say it started you know, with, uh, with a trade war? You know, I'm not really sure. Um, I don't know what you think about this, Regina. I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Um, but yes, maybe we wouldn't be talking about this if it wasn't you know, so um, uh, salient for us, but um, these kinds of alignments would would still be happening, um, and it might that might actually, you know, if it was sort of less um, less salient for domestic politics in the West, that might serve China's interests better. Um, another reason why they might not be that happy about all of this. But um, what do you think, Regina? Do you think that this is what, what would have happened if if this invasion had not taken place? 
So I, I absolutely agree with you that this is, um, while both may share a fear of U.S. hegemony or Western hegemony, um, without this war, there would be a very cautious China and a fairly aggressive Russia. So Russia would be what it doing what it had been doing, which was pushing for closer ties, but having to make huge concessions to get them. Now, a side effect of this war, which is fascinating, is that it's uncovered this um, deep skepticism about the West and the U.S., in part because of what we just heard about, in part because using dollars or SWIFT comes with strings. And people want to limit U.S. power. And whereas Russia and China have been competing in the global south, right, another constraint on their cooperation, especially in Central Asia and around Central Asian oil, but, but also in Africa in particular, this war has really revealed this deep antipathy for what is perceived as U.S. attempts to have an unfair fit unfair playing field and benefit themselves, what is perceived as imposing values that are Western and liberal that haven't been accepted by these societies, and that benefits come with strings. Russia and With Russia and China, benefits don't come with strings, or they come with very different kinds of more subtle strings, but they don't come with these human rights ties, and they don't come with, with sort of this is how we do business. And, and that, I think, has pushed Russia and China together in an interesting and unexpected way at this particular moment because of the war. I wanted to, you know, not to get too much into U.S. politics, but, um, you know, when, um, when Putin invaded Ukraine, or not invaded, but, you know, did, well, took over Crimea uh, in 2014, um, that was in the the waning years of the Obama administration, of course, and then there were four years of a very different kind of foreign policy. Let's just say that, uh, and then now, post twenty twenty, yet a much different approach. And I, I'm curious again the, the what we could play what if a, a lot about this, but you know to what extent the the that some of what Putin was doing was rehearsing for the invasion at a later point, assuming that the West was weakened, assuming that NATO was weakened, and he kind of kept rolling forward into a world in which, in fact, much to, I think, some people's surprise and a lot of people's relief, NATO stepped up and has, in fact, been stronger. So those kinds of dynamics have shifted dramatically, and to what extent has that also encourage China to affiliate more or, or strengthen its ties with Russia as a bulwark against what they see as an even stronger West politically. I, I, that wasn't really a question, but just uh, more about is that do you do you see those kinds of you know as our history has unfolded, our political history has unfolded, um, how much has that contributed? to what we're seeing China and Russia do together, or what, what China do with Russia. So I can say a couple words about Putin as a global disruptor, right? So Putin knows that he's weak on the foreign policy stage, but he's, he's projected an enormous amount of influence by just disrupting. And um, he really stymied the Obama administration, frankly, about how to deal with Russia. There was all this great hope coming in. And by the end of the administration, there was almost no connection to Russia. Mm -hmm. um, U.S. recovered somewhat during the Trump administration, not just because of Trump, but because of just, I, I think Russians don't naturally dislike the U.S., right? They, they want to be part of the Western world, they generally. Um, unfortunately, the drumbeat of NATO is against us and they're at our door really took hold. And the re-strengthening um, of NATO, the joining of Finland is mm -hmm. a huge slap in the face to the Russians. I mean, Finland was occupied by Russia till 1918 when it yeah. fought a war of independence. These things have really made it, again, back to political theater, it looks like a Cold War. Right? It yeah. feels like a Cold War. Now, the dynamics of this Cold War 
and the one that started right after World War II are entirely different because of trade, right? This is huge. But it certainly looks like Cold War, and there's no one in Washington who doesn't love a good historical analogy. Right. So, I mean, that sounds cynical, but it's true. It's how we understand things. Sure. And and so that resonates with people. And I think we have to be really careful about not attaching to that, because, as Jason says, the relationship is not anywhere near what it was. And Russia is not a great power. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. I guess I I'm curious, um, Regina, what you think about like the the takeover of Crimea in retrospect. Do you feel like the Obama administration should have handled that differently? I mean, we know we, we know a lot more now than we did back then, right? Um, how constrained were they, you know, if if the European partners really didn't want to do anything, you know, like um like what could they have done, I guess? I well, first of all, I want to express my dismay that I didn't take it more seriously, mm-hmm. right? So I was looking at other things that were going on, and I didn't pay as much attention to it as I might have. Um, there is language in Russia about Krimnash. Crimea belongs to us. It's part of the great Russia history. It was given to Khrushchev, gave it to Ukraine to thank them for Ukraine for its patriotism in um World War II, you know, patriotism that's now entirely under attack. Uh, so I, I think we probably needed to look at those narratives and consider them more seriously. I'm skeptical about analyses that say Putin, Putin was plotting all along. Mm-hmm. You know, it's easy to look at Putin and say, oh, he's a puppet master. Look, at he's been a genius. And there are people writing that. I think he's a very contingent policymaker. He knows how to take advantage of opportunities. And that was an opportunity. And I believe it was actually started by Russian nationalists in Crimea, or maybe some troops put in there, but not directed specifically by the Kremlin. That's a bigger conversation. But I think you're right. I think that that um, the U.S., the Obama administration, was just constrained. Europe was not united about Crimea. No one was prepared with significant sanctions. Even the very weak sanctions that were put in place were very controversial. And Germany was just very staunchly in, you know, not aggravating Russia, not, okay, poking the bear, right? Don't poke the bear. And that really undermined it, undermined the Obama administration. If you have questions or comments for us, you can give us a call at 812-855-0811 or toll free at 877-285-9348. You can also send your questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org. You can send them on Twitter at Noon Edition. We have about 20 minutes to go. I wanted to follow up on that conversation. I, I want to maybe a little, a little um, well, I'll take a different approach to what Lori was asking and just say, how does the the incredibly divided and what seems to be um, the inability of the U.S. Um, governmental, the the House and the Senate and the executive branch and the courts to all work together. How is that being seen in in China? And is it does it seem to be an opportunity to take advantage of the global situation? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I don't know that. I think in many ways, you know, the U.S. Um, has divided power, has a lot of veto players. It's not very good at making quick decisions a lot of the time. Um, but with respect to China, you know, that's kind of been the magic word lately to dissolve sort of partisan <laughs> bickering. Um, and so you see, you know, both Kevin McCarthy and Nancy Pelosi making these, you know, overtures to Taiwan, for instance, right? Um, and so, um, and so, yes, I don't know that. That sort of uh, partisan bickering seems to be as much of a constraint on the U.S. response to China, but you do see it with the U.S. response to Russia. Um, and I think it's very interesting to compare that to, you know, what we saw during the Cold War, right? This sort of like the coalition, the domestic politics coalition in the U.S. against the Soviet Union. Like, it seems to me that more of that was about godless communism. Um, than than maybe I had realized, and now you know you have the right that's a little bit split, um, uh, 
because Putin seems to be more sophisticated about American politics than you know, the leaders of the Soviet Union were. Um, and so I don't know. I, you know, maybe China could learn something about. I, they haven't been very successful at getting uh, like a corner of uh, of American politics to be a little bit more friendly towards their interests. Regina, is it? How's it viewed in in Russia? Is it seen as an opportunity to perhaps uh, take some political advantage? Well, sure, because Russian state television seizes on everything that happens on the U.S. to sort of paint a picture of what it's like in the U.S. in terms of poor values, lack of political respect, lack of social respect, guns and violence and and all sorts of other issues. They're now looking at the debt ceiling and saying, look, the U.S. isn't even going to pay its bills, right? So, of course, the U.S. is going to pay its bills, and and, uh, there's some very sophisticated maneuvering going on around, Mm -hmm. around the debt ceiling. But, yeah, I mean, Putin as the disruptor leverages all of these things on Russian TV to educate Russian audiences, to double down with, there's just a wonderful story today in the Washington Post about how Putin interfered with German elections on the basis of xenophobic and far-right values, and uh, then used Russian diaspora communities in Germany to foster protests to disrupt German government. And so, and which I think is why Helsinki was so, Finland was so concerned. So yeah, I think these things are just opportunities. And the Kremlin has a huge presidential administration. They're always watching the world. You know, they're looking for Lula. They're they're on the door of Venezuela, and and they're always looking for people who might partner with them against the U.S. They actually got involved in Francophone Africa, even as they were fighting in Ukraine to poke their fingers in in France's eye and say, "Look, look! Now they're all protesting against France, holding Russian flags, of all things, in in Africa." Yeah, I want to go back uh, to the question that uh, uh, you asked about whether we would have this conversation if Ukraine uh, was not invaded by uh, by Russia. Uh, and I want to also relate that to international trade. I think part of the reason that uh, Russia was not happy with the situation in Ukraine was about international trade, because Ukraine was trying to get closer to Europe and become part of Europe. Uh, in that case, uh, so there would be a lot more trade between Ukraine and Europe, and Ukraine would stop, probably reduce its uh, trade relationship with Russia. From Russia's perspective, a lot of this is related to international trade. Most people talk about NATO, which I think, of course, is very important. But remember that uh, Russia had the same reaction to Georgia's attempt to join EU, uh, because, again, uh, Russia wanted to keep, because Russia is relatively isolated in terms of international trade. Most of its trade is with its neighbors and with the uh, mm-hmm. former Soviet countries. And uh, so both of these can be uh, understood based on uh, Russia's approach to international trade, which was instead of having trade with, uh, trying to have trade with the uh, global economy, they were mostly focused on countries around Russia and they didn't want to lose that very easily. I want to ask a, a follow-up that has to do with the international, uh, the global economy, and that is, you know, we we uh, we're coming into elections, and the economy is always a huge issue in the United States. Look at the inflation here. How does the inflation in the U.S. compare to the rest of the world? Is this an international problem? So it is an international problem. Um, a lot of countries have this problem, and uh, some countries claim and uh, complain about the U.S. that U.S. is exporting its inflation to the rest of the world by uh, trying to basically uh, make it easier for uh, the U.S. to buy from the rest of the world and uh, exporting less, which would uh, put pressure on prices in other countries. So, But it is certainly a global phenomenon. The question is whether the U.S. is causing it or not, because a lot of uh, observers claim that inflation in the U.S. is basically being exported to the rest of the world. And uh, so this is, again, going back to uh, the dominance of dollar in the world economy. So U.S. could do this, but China couldn't, for example, uh, do this that easily. If they have some issue with uh, inflation, they cannot 
simply export their inflation to the rest of the world. Okay, I'm going to ask you for your opinion. So, is is the U.S. is the U.S. at fault? Is the U.S. the the cause of the worldwide inflation? Um, so, I don't think that there is an intention there. But because U.S. is so large and it has uh, yeah. so much import and export, mm-hmm. it's uh, uh, the largest countries in terms of imports and exports. So, it obviously any monetary policy in the U.S. is going to have impact on inflation in other countries as mm-hmm. well. But it, I don't think that it is intentional. Okay, yeah. thank you. Speaking of inflation, this is a bit of a um, stab in the dark, but I, I took note um, just kind of in passing that uh, the head of the um, uh, People's Bank of China, I think, mm-hmm. the main central bank, um, who apparently is stepping down and who, by the way, used to be on the economics faculty at Indiana University in Indianapolis, Yigong, um, some years ago. Um, and I, you know, I don't know if you had any. No, I didn't know that. <laughs> didn't know that, or it was some, some time ago. He's been been in China for a long time, um, but he he gave he apparently gave a speech that talked about the importance of of open open markets and open trade, which doesn't seem to, from an outsider's perspective, conform exactly to where where China is. And just curious to know how, and and Jason, you may comment on this as well, about those kinds of um, centralized economic policies here with with respect to controlling things like inflation and interest rates and so forth, and how much of that is really independent of what happens um, in the global, I mean, nothing's completely independent of the global economy, but how much China can control that um, separate from what's going on in the U.S. with inflation. So, uh, one, one reason for inflation in the U.S. could be the fact that uh, imports have become more expensive, right? Right, and, right. But, uh, so that would be a, just a one-time increase in prices. So the fact that prices keep going up, it's very hard to attribute that to policies or the cost of production in China or disruption in supply chains and so forth. But definitely at the beginning of this inflation, a lot of people thought that this is going to be temporary. It is an infla- inflation in one year, but that's it. That's going to be it. But it turned out that the problem is a lot uh, deeper than that. And uh, so at the beginning, yes, that disruption in supply chains that had to do with what was happening in China and other countries uh, did contribute to increase in prices, but that was a temporary impact on mm-hmm. prices in the U.S. and in Europe. But the fact that we keep uh, seeing rises in uh, prices I don't believe that that can be attributed to policies in those countries. And you also mentioned that uh, China is, uh, is trying to be more open. Definitely uh, over the last 30 years or so, uh, China has become more market-oriented. And there are calls for like more transparency, maybe opening up their capital account, allowing uh, foreigners to invest in China and take their investment out mm-hmm. of China easily. So a lot of economists don't recommend that to China right now because that could lead to uh, financial crisis. So in the U.S., that doesn't lead to financial crisis because the U.S. has very well-established market economy. But China still has very weak uh, market institutions, and uh, so such suggestions might be actually uh, counterproductive for China. And that's why they keep their capital account very controlled. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's why, again, if you go back to the issue of Dollar, uh, de-dollarization, so it's, they are very far from achieving that because of the type of market, uh, the type of economy and economic policy that they have. Yeah. yeah. Jason, you want to add to that? Yeah, I, um, I think it's an interesting phenomenon where you have different parts of these governments sounding somewhat different messages. So Janet Yellen just said a, uh, a couple of things that sounded a lot more um, conciliatory um, with this respect to U.S.-China competition, you know, um, and part of that is like different parts of the government, you know, maybe see the world a little bit differently, but I wonder if part of this isn't also um, some kind of signal, you know, like a, to our foreign uh, competitors, um, you can, you, you have a menu of options, you know, like if you want to respond to this kind of overture, you know, you can selectively <laughs> respond to the sorts of things um, that the government says. Um, and um, certainly I think that there are parts of the Chinese government that you know, um, are a little bit discomfited by how the 
escalation in you know U.S. China sort of tit for tat. Um, uh, uh, I don't know competition is going, and um, it would be, I think, a little bit easier for them if if they were able to restore relations without it, without incurring some kind of major you know reputational uh, cost. Um, and so mm-hmm. you know maybe mm-hmm. that's what this is. Yeah, I w- one other question you mentioned um, Taiwan. And I'm curious to know what, how the dynamics there um, might look right now, and, and if there's any implication from these China-Russia ties with respect to uh, perhaps taking our attention away from what might be happening in Taiwan or even more in the South China Sea. Um, but just the, the dynamics around Taiwan, of course, are another kind of powder keg situation, and I wonder what you think is happening there now? Yeah, I think that um, as far as Taiwan goes, you know, uh, everyone who's pot- potential, potentially, you know, imagining themselves in the position of, you know, one of the belligerents in this conflict is trying to learn from uh, the Russia-Ukraine war. Um, and so um, if if there were to be some, some kind of conflict, it would be in many ways more challenging for um, for China because they have this you know, logistical uh, problem of you know um, going across the strait. Um, it would be more challenging for the U.S. to uh, keep up free supply, for instance, for similar reasons. Um, and so, uh, you know, I don't know that any of this is news to the people who are who are in charge of planning all of this, but I think it has changed some of the political urgency, um, uh, both for the public and also for these mm-hmm. politicians. And you know, we see. Putin doing something that seems very, on some level, irrational, um, and maybe this is about you know personal uh, legacy or something like that. And I think that people worry, you know, um, like what is really inside Xi Jinping's head, right? Like we don't really know. Um, but um, you you see all this analysis where you know people are making this. Uh, calculation, you know, if time is not on our side, we have to act more quickly, you know, or like, yeah. is there some kind of window that we need to fit through? And I think that, um, I think that everyone is a little bit worried about Taiwan in part because uh, it's not so clear, you know, um, is if there will be a relatively more advantageous time for China to use force against Taiwan. Um, and my personal opinion is that it doesn't really make sense. They should just wait, um, but. Um, but you know, if it's about like she personally achieving this um, during his time in office, then obviously you know that they might not be as patient um, yeah. as as they would otherwise. Regina, I want to ask you about your book because I, I've got a, a review here, a short review, and it says some things that just surprised me when I read it. That says this book reveals the stresses and challenges of maintaining an electoral authoritarian regime and provides a roadmap to understand how seemingly stable authoritarian systems, Russia, uh, can fall quickly to popular challenges. Explain that to us. So um, we often look at these authoritarian states and pay a lot of scholarly attention to the very top and not much scholarly attention to what's happening in society. And um, Jason and I both do that kind of work in China and in me in Russia. In Russia, during this war, you probably have heard that Russians are passive and they're accepting and everyone supports the war and nothing could be more false. And there's massive protest every day going on in Russia in a very dangerous society, uh, at a very dangerous time. So I wouldn't say massive, but, but consistent, persistent protests. There's a lot of mobilization happening. It's just all below the radar. And there are crises in elections revealed at the moment of elections. And I do think this was what Mr. Putin was worried about in 2024. If he could not build a new source of political legitimacy, he was going to be staunchly challenged by people boycotting elections, people engaging in protest voting, signaling to each other that they no longer support the regime, that they no longer support Mr. Putin. And then the people at the top say, aha, if I reach down, I could do something. So often we talk about these things as sudden and rapid and unexpected. Think the Arab Spring. 
But if you really look at what's happening, Russian society was massively changing by 2020. And Putin needed to do something. And this war was part of what he did. Moving to China is part of what he's doing. Being the great disruptor, finding, being the leader of global anti-liberal values. All of these things are part of a strategy that appear to make him inevitable. But actually, can he win an election? But this three days to Kyiv didn't work out. It did not work out. No. So how's that changed the dynamic? So, um, you know, there is just something my friend Jeremy Morris, an anthropologist, calls defensive consolidation happening in Russia. We don't want this war. We never wanted this war. We don't know how we got here. It's not my country right or wrong. It's if we lose, it's, it's bad for us. And this is a country that had massive trauma in the 1990s that's very in their memory so what that doesn't mean that there's not growing opposition to what's happening the misconduct of the war why they haven't won already the poor performance of the military the, the unequal conscription between non-russian citizens and russian citizens there is a huge, a significant anti-war movement based on women called the feminist anti-war resistance that is every day engaging in symbolic and other types of actions. That's building networks all over the country. So, so there, and also economic conditions are getting rough. So sanctions yeah. didn't work fast, but they're starting to really affect Russia. All right, I'm going to have to cut you off there. We are out of time. I want to thank our three Indiana University faculty members who have helped us sort out these issues that involve China and Russia and what they're drawing closer together mean to the rest of us. Uh, I want to thank Regina Smith from the Political Science Department, and also Jason Wu, Assistant Professor of Political Science, and Dr. Mustafa Bashkar, Associate Professor of Economics at IU, for Lori McRobbie, our engineer Mike Pashkash, our producer Nathan Moore. I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey services for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com.